At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we step into the new year, we're turning to the book of James for our message series, Live the Truth. In a culture preaching the power of whatever feels right to you, it's time to set aside positive vibes for a truth you can stand on. Join us as we answer James' call to reject the latest feel-good message for a mature faith. One of the most um, significant threats to any economic system is counterfeit currency. When we go about our daily lives of exchanging goods and services and exchanging money for those goods and services, one of the things that we assume in those exchanges is that the money that we use is genuine and has value to what it represents, right? When you hand over money at the store, the store assumes that money is connected with a certain value that you bring to it and that they will give you what you are purchasing or whatever in exchange for that money. When there isn't actual genuine currency where counterfeit currency exists, we don't find actual meaningful exchanges. What we find in those situations are theft and robbery, right? For if I give you something that's worthless, but you give something back to me that's worth something, that doesn't feel like a meaningful exchange, which is why our societies and most Western, I mean, most societies that deal with currency go to great lengths to display that that currency is in fact genuine, right? This is why when you, you go to the store and you hand the cashier a $20 bill, if you still use cash anymore, which we use less of, but still, if you do, right, you might see the cashier take that $20 bill and hold it up to the light for a second to check if it's real. Why do they do that? Because real money has a little ribbon printed in the $20 bill that shows you that it's genuine. Fake currency usually doesn't. Or maybe they pull out one of those little pens like they used to and they mark the bills with the pens, right? Because our currency is printed on a special type of paper and they want to see if the pen will react to that paper or if it's in fact false. They want to know, is this money that's being exchanged genuine or not? Why? Because... Where genuine money is exchanged, it results in something that's meaningful and true. Over the last few weeks, we've been studying through the book of James. And James writes to a group of Christians that have been scattered from Jerusalem into the surrounding areas because of persecution. And James writes to this group of Christians to encourage them to have a mature faith in the midst of the trials and circumstances that they're facing. And what he wants to mark their mature faith by is wisdom. He wants them to have a certain wisdom that leads to having a deep, mature, complete, is almost the word he uses at the beginning, faith. For James, faith is a central aspect to life in the kingdom of God. In fact, we see this not only in James, but all throughout scripture. You could almost say that faith is the currency of the kingdom. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews 11:6 when he says, "Without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him." 
The Apostle Paul, in his great letter to the Romans, would remind us of the centrality of faith when he writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, in Romans 1.16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith is what ultimately unites us to Christ and allows us to experience the salvation that God offers to us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It is no understatement that faith is central to what it means to be a Christian. And in fact, I would argue what it means to be a human being created in the image of God, that we are created to trust in him. But the question that I want to wrestle with a little bit today is, is all faith created equal? In the passage that we just read a moment ago, James asks an interesting question right in the opening verse. Look at it. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In asking the question itself, James, from the get-go, is assuming that there might be two types of faith. A genuine faith that for James results in salvation, being brought into relationship with God, being saved from our sin, and the potential of a false faith, a faith that does not result in salvation. Just like you can have a genuine bill or a counterfeit bill, For James, it appears that there is a faith that is genuine and a faith that is counterfeit. One results in life. The other ultimately leads to death and separation from God. I think James is actually picking up an idea we see in Jesus' teaching. Towards the end of Jesus's, one of Jesus' most famous teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, where he lays out what it looks like to live life in the kingdom of God, Jesus gives these verses as a warning towards the end of that teaching in Matthew 7. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a hard passage from Jesus because what he demonstrates here is there's the potential for someone to claim that they have faith to even do things in the name of Jesus, but in the end, to not actually know him. It's sobering. And I think James is bringing us back to ask the question, what is genuine faith? If there's such a thing as genuine faith and counterfeit faith, what is genuine faith? And what does it look like? And how does it compare to a counterfeit faith? How do I know? How do I know if I have genuine faith or not? Certainly, we don't want to get to the point at the end of our lives where we stand before Jesus and him say like, yep, sorry, I don't know who you are. No, we, we desire and want a faith that brings us into life, into eternal life with Jesus. But if there is a faith that can appear genuine but isn't actually genuine, how do I know? 
if my faith is real or is it counterfeit? Is there some sort of test I can do? Just like I hold a 20 up to the light to look for the ribbon, is there some way that I can look at the faith that I have and see if that's genuine or not? Well, the good news is that James actually wants to give us a test today. He wants to help us understand how we can know if we have genuine faith or if we've been deceived into a counterfeit faith. And James's test is very simple that we're going to see in this passage. It's simply this, that genuine faith is revealed through actions. If we were to look for the strip that runs through faith to show that it's genuine, if we were to mark and look for the imprint of what true faith looks like, what James wants us to understand is that genuine faith that results in the meaningful exchange of salvation is shown by the actions it produces in our life. Faith and actions in James' minds are inseparable reality. And he wants us to look at that reality to help us know that we have genuine faith. And so to do that, he lays out two different realities as faith relates to actions to help us unpack that. We see this first one come right away again in verse 14. Look at it once more. What good is it? So here's the question that he wants to pose at the beginning. Is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that needed for the body, what good is that? What James wants us to understand right from the get-go in the relationship between faith and actions is that faith without actions is dead. That it doesn't actually produce life. In these verses, James is actually picking up a line of reasoning that he's kind of unpacked throughout the letter. You kind of need to understand the context of what he means, the reality that he desires for us to have a mature faith marked by wisdom. What he begins to show, right, in a dynamic love for the, your neighbor, but ultimately a love for God. Verse 27 of chapter 1 is kind of the thesis statement of James. If you look back at it, he says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. When we looked at that passage a couple weeks ago, what we saw and noticed is that James is actually giving kind of his summary of Jesus's summary of what it looks like to really live the way God designed us, which is we are called to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's James's idea that we're loving God and living life for him, and we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves, and for James, that results in a love for the marginalized, for the poor, for those on the outskirts of society. When James talks about the idea here of works, this is the idea he's drawing from. That a work, that our works mean that we're living the way Jesus taught us to live, with a radical love for God and a radical love for one another. And so in the first half of chapter 1, James kind of brings out one aspect of that, talking about how a community that's rooted in Jesus' teaching will not show partiality to people based on their economic status. And we unpacked that a little bit last week. But James kind of anticipates through that argument that he's going to face some opponents who come along and essentially say, why is it such a big deal, James, for how I actually live? Like, if I have faith in Jesus, can I just say I have faith in Jesus? Like, what, what is all this partiality stuff? What's all this aspect stuff? What's all this loving the poor stuff? What's, what's all that have to do with just following Jesus? 
And James essentially wants to kind of engage that argument to help people understand that stuff is important because how you live reveals what you actually believe. For James, a vain religion that doesn't result in love for God and love for others is rooted in a much deeper problem, a disconnect between faith and action. And he wants to set us out to help us understand, no, your actions are important because it reveals genuine faith. He actually sets up these first four or first couple verses to kind of focus you on that key question. So remember, James is Jewish. He writes very Jewish. He's circular and he uses Jewish techniques in his writings. And one of the techniques that Jesus, or that James, sorry, uses that's very Jewish is what's known as a chiasm. And a chiasm is a way of writing in which you kind of pair outer stanzas and inner stanzas to move to a central idea. And if you look at the first few verses, it's very much set up this way. You can actually see it on the screen. So James starts with this opening question What good is it, brothers? If someone says they have faith but do not have works, and then he moves to this key question, can that faith save him? Is that faith worth anything? Is it genuine? And then he moves back to kind of give us an illustration of someone who says they have faith but doesn't have works, and then comes back to his key question, what good is it? And all through that, he's trying to challenge us to ask the question, can you have a faith that's genuine, that's disconnected from the way you live? And so he gives us this kind of idea that, no, even by the way he asked the question, he kind of expects a negative answer to the question, can that faith save him? To illustrate that, he gives us this absurd scenario, right? Imagine that someone meets someone who's in need, and they come along to them and essentially say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but do nothing to help them with their physical need in that moment, right? That that seems absurd. Um, Charles Schultz, the famous um, author of the Peanuts cartoon, actually captured this idea in a comic strip he wrote um, a while early on in his kind of comicking career. All right, you kind of see it uh, on, the, on the screen behind me. Snoopy's frozen in the snow, right? Charlie and Linus come up to him, notice that he's freezing and cold and shut. We can all in Michigan identify with this, right? I mean, I was like freezing this morning when I walked out of my house. So imagine being without a coat, and they give him the the simple, be of good cheer, be of good cheer, and then they walk away. We like, look at this, we laugh, it's a comic, it's funny, right? But but all of us would look at that and say, that's absurd. Like, no no one, who would do that? You you wouldn't come up someone freezing in the snow and just be like, ah, hope, hope you get warm, see ya. And James essentially says, when you come along and say, oh yeah, I have faith, but I don't have works, it's that same level of illogic and absurdity, right? That those, that, we wouldn't do that. So to, to claim that doesn't make sense. That, that's why he moves and draws the conclusion in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? It's dead. For James, that means it's useless. It's lifeless. It, it produces nothing in us of the kingdom. It does not move us towards the salvation that God has for us. Faith for James that doesn't result in a change of life and action is a dead faith. Maybe you could think of it this way. Imagine that you had a friend who called you up on the phone and they said, hey, listen, I just got 
a brand new 2021 Mustang GT. And I want you to come over and check it out. You're like, sweet, that sounds awesome, right? If you're not a Mustang fan, you can think of another car. And so you go over to your friend's house, and there you see it sitting in the driveway. Brand new, gorgeous. It's like your favorite color. It looks awesome. You get out of the car. You and your buddy start to walk around it. You're admiring all the beauty of it, the curves, the design, the front end, the classic Mustang logo. You're like, this is an awesome car. And you turn to your buddy and say, hey, can you pop the, pop the hood? I want to see what the engine in this bad boy looks like, right? And so he goes in, he pops the hood, you pull it up, you look down, you look in the spot where the engine's supposed to be, and there's nothing there. And you're like, I thought you told me you got, me, got a new Mustang. He's like, yeah, man, look at this. This thing's gorgeous. You're like, uh, it doesn't have an engine. Like, I don't think you bought a car. I think you bought a frame. He's like, no, don't, like, don't you see how gorgeous this car is? You're like, yeah, that's great. It might look like a Mustang, but this thing's not going to drive like a Mustang. Like, you're not going anywhere with this thing. Like, it doesn't make sense. To have a car without an engine isn't a car. And that's essentially James's point about faith. To say you have faith, but that faith doesn't actually result in any change in how you live is a faith that doesn't take you anywhere. It's a faith that never leaves the driveway. It's claiming to follow Jesus, but doesn't actually change anything about you. That's not faith, according to James. That's dead. A car without an engine isn't a car, and a faith without actions is not faith. And so James wants to bring this to the forefront. He, he almost challenges us right from the get-go because his heart is that he doesn't want us to be caught in that place. He doesn't want us to have a car that's a lemon. He wants us to have a sort of faith that actually matters and changes and results in the salvation that God brings and offers us through Jesus. And so his point is in exposing the reality of a counterfeit faith that disconnects actions from what we believe is so that we would begin to move towards and embrace genuine faith. So as he exposes false faith, he wants to then move us towards understanding what true and genuine faith looks like. Because for James, faith with action is not dead, but very much alive. And we see him start to make that move in verse 18. So once again, he engages his opponents. So he kind of brings their words into play and says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Right? So he, he kind of engages the person that says, okay, that's fine. But like, I've got faith, you've got works, like, where's the connection, James? You're making too big a deal about this connection between faith and works. They really don't have anything to do with each other. And what James then wants to respond is to help them see that, no, they're actually interconnected. That's why he says here, show me your faith apart from your works. He essentially says, well, how do I see your faith? Show it to me. If you don't have any actions that are out of your faith, how am I supposed to see it? And he says, no, genuine faith is so interconnected that I'll show you my faith by my works. My works will demonstrate to you what I actually believe in. Because our actions reveal the genuineness of our faith and shows our faith to be alive. For James, you cannot separate the two. You cannot live in a place that says, I believe in Jesus, that doesn't really matter how I live. And in order to help us understand that point and that connection between faith and action, he's going to give us three illustrations to kind of drive his point home, that faith and action are interconnected. 
We see the first one come right away in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. So James, he wants to engage his opponent, so he brings to them one of their core truths about God, that they believe that God is one. Remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians in a Jewish audience at this point. And one of the central cries of Judaism is what is known as the Shema. It's found in Deuteronomy 6.4. And it's one of the central truths that Jews would pray daily to remind themselves of who God is. The word Shema just means hear. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so when James says, you believe that God is one, you do well, he knows that his opponents will affirm that, yes, we do believe that God is one. We confess this truth about God every day. God is, in fact, the one true God. But then he flips the tables on him. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. See, what he wants to help them see is just because you know truths about God, if that doesn't change how you live, that doesn't mean that you have actual faith. I mean, even God's spiritual enemies believe that God is one. They even know spiritual truths about God, but they don't believe in it in a way that changes. They actually stand opposed to God. And what he's trying to show is there is a counterfeit faith that can claim to know truths about God, but don't actually live it in practice. And for James, that's a demonically rooted faith. Just because we know truths about God doesn't mean we actually believe in him. There are countless professors around this nation and around the world who know way more than you and I know about the Bible and do not believe one lick of the truth of the salvation that it proclaims. And James would come along and say, that's what demonic faith looks like. So don't find yourself in a place that say, yeah, I know God. I know who God is. I know all this stuff about the Bible. But if you're not actually living it, if you're not actually putting it into practice, then James would say, I don't know if your faith is actually genuine. James moves into then his second illustration in verse, 20, in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You can almost feel James's challenge. Like, he's so passionate about this. And I love it because in some ways I sympathize with him as a pastor because there's so many times in my life where I encounter people and I want to say, man, I want nothing more than for you to know God's love, to experience the life and salvation that he has for you. I want you to have a genuine faith that stands in the midst of trials. But sometimes people come along and they say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I can live however I want to live. I can do whatever I want to do. And there's so many times I don't want to say, oh, you foolish person. No, you can't. You can't do that. You can't disconnect faith and action. They're interconnected. James actually brings up a pun to highlight that. When he says, you believe that, or I'm sorry, when he says, uh, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless, that word useless is actually rooted in the word works. You could translate it as, do you want to be shown that your works are workless? He wants to highlight the absurdity of the reality that says, do you want to be shown that that having a faith disconnected from works doesn't actually result 
And then he goes into this illustration of Abraham. So again, he's going to take his audience that's very Jewish back to the father of the Jewish faith because he wants them to see, look, if you go all the way back from the way God instituted his plan of salvation in Abraham that would ultimately result in the coming of Jesus, what we see from the very beginning is that ultimately faith is connected with action. That's why he says in 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled, and he's quoting from Genesis 15 here, that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So, here, James brings up Abraham because he wants him to show Abraham's faith was ultimately counted to him as righteousness, which means God declared Abraham to be in the right. That's a legal term. But not only that, Abraham was also made a friend of God because of his faith. The same thing is offered to you and I now through the work of Jesus Christ by his death and resurrection, that we, despite our sin, can be declared in the right, we can be declared righteous by God, but we can also come to know God in a personal way. And what James wants to show is what ultimately brought that out in Abraham's life was his faith, but that faith was not disconnected from his actions. In fact, his actions are what demonstrated, and even he uses words, completed or brought into fullness the reality of his faith. You cannot disconnect faith from action. Abraham's faith was genuine because it was demonstrated by his willingness to follow and obey God no matter the cost. And that for James is what an alive or an effective faith looks like. A genuine faith results in righteousness and friendship with God, which is amazing. And then James draws this conclusion then in verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, that verse can feel for some of us like a little bit like, whoa, James, where are you going with this? Because one of the hallmarks of our faith is that we believe we're saved or justified, we're declared in the right by grace through faith alone. This is one of the things our Protestant forefathers recaptured out of the biblical teaching was when the Catholic Church was saying, no, 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 you're justified by your works. It's by what you do. It's by all the actions and activities. That's how God declares you righteous. They went back into the teachings of Paul and showed verses like Romans 4 or Galatians 3 where Paul uses the same illustration of Abraham and says, no, 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 it's faith. Faith is what justifies you. It's faith that results to Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn righteousness before God. The Old Testament says our righteousness is like filthy rags before him. But when you trust in God, he gives you the, faith, the righteousness of Christ. And faith alone is what brings justification. But then James comes along and says, well, no, it's, it's not faith alone. You're justified by works. And so naturally, it should cause us to go, whoa, 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 what's he saying here? Is there a contradiction biblically? Like, am I saved by faith or am I saved by works? And is James contradicting Paul? And the simple answer is no. There's not a contradiction here. But in order to understand why there's not a contradiction, and I think it's important for us to know this. We're going to get into the weeds just for a second. Don't worry, we'll kind of come under and surface back on the other side. But I think it's important for you to understand this because for a lot of people, this can cause confusion in their journeys of faith. What we have to understand in 
navigating Paul's call of saved by faith alone, justified by faith alone, and James's call here of justified by works and not by faith alone, is to recognize that they're actually talking about two different aspects of our salvation. So when the Bible talks about salvation, it talks about salvation in a holistic sense. You can think of it this way, that our salvation is experienced in three tenses. One aspect of our salvation that the scripture talks about is we're saved in the past tense, which means our sins, our unrighteousness, all that we've done. God, when we put our faith in Jesus, forgives us of that and brings us into relationship with himself. Right? We, we have been saved, the scripture will say. So when Paul says things like in Romans 5.1, therefore we're justified by faith and we have peace with God, what he means is prior to our faith in Jesus, we did not have peace with God. We were enemies of God. There was a hostility with God. God's wrath stood over us. But when we put our faith in Jesus, we were brought into relationship with him. God declared us righteous and we had peace with him. We can now have right now a relationship with God because we have been saved. There's a present tense sense of our salvation, which means we are being saved, that God is working out that reality of salvation in the here and now, in the midst of a broken world. The big fancy term for this is sanctification, meaning we're being made more holy through our lives to be conformed to be more like Jesus. So we are being saved. But then the Bible also talks about a future salvation or a finality of our salvation, when Jesus will return to establish his kingdom fully and finally and establish a new heaven and a new earth. And on that day, we will inherit the eternal life that God has for us. And at that point, we will be saved from sin forever. Maybe another way you can think of it is we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the present, or we are being saved from the power of sin currently. And one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. Now, when Paul talks about that we're justified by faith alone, Paul is referencing our initial justification. He's writing to an audience that says, no, I'm saved by all these markers of righteousness that I've done. I follow the law. I do this. I'm a good Jew. I practice this. And Paul says, no, none of that earns you anything. Only faith in Jesus brings you into right relationship with God. We're justified by faith alone. When James says we're justified by works, James is looking to our future justification, which means there's going to be a day where we stand before the judgment seat of God. Every human being will be stand before God in judgment, and the only thing that will save us in that day is our faith in Christ. But what will demonstrate our genuine faith is the life that we lived, the change. And so what James is saying is you're justified by works, meaning faith cannot be disconnected. You cannot stand before God one day and say, yeah, I believed in Jesus, but didn't matter for any part of my life. God will say, well, yeah, the demons believed in Jesus. Didn't matter for them. But genuine faith results in action. So when James says we're justified by works, what he means is the works of our life will demonstrate where that initial faith was. Was it a genuine faith in Jesus? Or did I just go through the motions? I didn't really trust him. It didn't really matter for how I lived. In fact, I just kept all the focus on me. So hopefully that at least maybe helps you understand where that tension comes in. As they look at different aspects of our salvation, they're trying to bring out different points. And James's point is you cannot get to that final justification and have nothing 
that faith produced in your life. You can't, you can't say, well, yeah, I trust in Jesus, and it did not do one single thing, because genuine faith reveals itself in action. And the reformers actually understood this. They, they tried to make this careful delineation. In fact, one of the great reformers, John Calvin, in his response uh, to the Council of Trent, writes this, which I think is a really helpful distinction. He says, I wish the reader to understand that as often as we mention faith alone in this question, we are not thinking of a dead faith which works not by love, but holding to faith to be the only cause of justification. Right? There's the key. Faith is what justifies us alone. But here's the distinction he draws. It is therefore a faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. It is not your works that justify. It is your faith. But genuine faith is always resulting and connecting in changes in our lives, in living the way of Jesus. And he uses this illustration, just as the heat alone, it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with light. Even the reformers recognize in their cry of faith alone that genuine faith demonstrates or reveals itself through our actions. You cannot separate the two. And in fact, I would argue the scripture is consistent and clear from beginning to end that this is what genuine faith looks like. And to exclamate the point, James gives us one more person to look at, to highlight how genuine faith is revealed in action and how action shows the aliveness of our faith. You see him bring her up in verse 25. Look what he says. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? You're like, who's Rahab? Right? So Rahab is a little minor story in the book of Joshua when the spies were sent into the land to check out Jericho and Canaan, and they were kind of in fear of being caught. And Rahab actually takes some of the spies and hides them in her house. She begins to fear God, and so she hides these men so that they wouldn't be captured and sends her out. And it's just this little story, but James wants to highlight her as an example to show she actually had faith, and that faith resulted in her living in a radically different way than all the people around her were living. She could not be more opposite from Abraham. Right? In fact, one commentator says this, while the likewise leads one to expect a parallel illustration, Rahab differs in almost every way from Abraham. Whereas Abraham was a wealthy moral male, the father of the Jewish nation, and a major figure in his society, Rahab was probably poor, definitely immoral, a female, an outcast of the Canaanite nation, and a minor figure in her society. And yet, James brings her up as an incredible example of faith that is revealed in work. So what's he doing here? James is using in this passage a literary technique known as marismus. Now, I, didn't, I know you didn't think you were coming to church for a grammar lesson right? But, but it's actually a very important point. You're like, what's a marismus? I was like, a marismus is two contrasting parts that are used to highlight a whole or the entire thing. So when you say something like, um, I searched high and low for my keys, you're using a marismus. You're taking the opposite ends of a spectrum to highlight all the things in between. Because what you mean is, I looked everywhere, right? I, I looked all over. What James is doing by bringing up Abraham and Rahab is he's trying to use them as the extremes to highlight the whole. He takes the major figure, father of the faith, and a minor character, and he says, look at both of them. They showed their faith by what they did. 
And he wants to say, and if you look in between all the people in your scriptures that had genuine faith, it was revealed by their actions, by how they actually lived. Because genuine faith cannot be disconnected from the actions of our life. That's why he says, if you separate from faith from action, it's like separating the spirit from the body. We call that death. That's a dead faith. But a live faith, a living faith, is when faith results in action in our life. One more illustration to help you think about this. Charles Blondin was a famous 19th century tightrope walker. So long before there was television, long before all of our entertainment, Blondin would go and he would do these incredible tightrope exhibitions, and he did it all over the world. And some of his most famous exhibitions is his tightrope walks across the Niagara Gorge. He did this on several occasions, and he was world famous for going across the the gorge. He did it a number of times, and each time he would kind of ramp up and do something more extreme. One time he walked across the Niagara Gorge on stilts, One time he walked across the Niagara Gorge on um, uh, blindfolded, which is pretty amazing, right? Like, I have no idea. I guess the bonus is if you fall, you don't know when you hit the ground. So that that helps, right? But, but, But the legend goes, there's a famous story that goes that one day Blondin went to do his routine at the Niagara Gorge, and he got out a wheelbarrow, and he proceeded to walk all the way across the Niagara Gorge with the wheelbarrow and walk all the way back to the crowd that was waiting for him on the side. And when he got done, Blondin turned to the crowd, and the legend goes that he said, how many of you believe that I could push another person in this wheelbarrow all the way across the Niagara Gorge? And it's said that the crowd responded with huge cheers. They were all pumped up. They had just seen Blondin do this, push this barrel. And yes, we believe you. You can do it. And the story goes that Blondin turned and says, who will get in the wheelbarrow with me? And no one raised their hands. See, that's not faith. That's affirmation. Affirmation says, yeah, I think you can, but I'm not going to get in the wheelbarrow. And there's a lot of people that affirm Jesus, but they don't trust Jesus. They're like, oh yeah, I think you're king, but I don't want to live the way you want me to live. Yeah, Jesus, I'm fall for your salvation. Who wants to go to hell? But I'm not actually going to follow you. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. And James says, if you find yourself in that place, that's not faith. Faith is getting in the wheelbarrow. Faith is saying, no, 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 I'm not going to keep walking my way. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to follow your way, Jesus. I'm going to try to learn what it looks like to live a life where I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to try to learn your teachings, your understanding of what it looks like to be human and live in the world. That's what genuine faith looks like. And that's what results in the salvation of our lives that starts in part now and is brought to fullness one day. And James says, that's the sort of faith that I want you to have. That's what I want you to experience, that robust, mature faith. And it's precisely this connection between faith and actions that gives us an effective way to evaluate our own faith. James doesn't exhort us in this so we can look at others and judge them in our own self-importance. He doesn't bring up faith in action so you can look at the people around you and say, if you were really a Christian, then you would be doing this. No, he brings it up for you to look at your own heart and say, when I look at my life, do I see a change? 
Do I see a difference in how I live because I've met Jesus or not? It's a way that we can have assurance in our faith. The same way that you would double check that you had genuine money if someone gave you a $100 bill. The same way that you would genuinely check to make sure that you don't have a lemon when you buy a car. James wants you to have assurance that your faith is real. And what he says is, look at the actions of your life. Does it show that you're following Jesus or not? Now, he's not demanding that there's some perfection in your life. That's not what he's saying. Notice, he's not giving you some bar that you have to attain. Like, I got to do this in my life, and then this in my life, and then this in my life, and that shows that I'm really a Christian. No, he just wants you to go back to those two key questions. Do you see an increase in the love of God in your life and changes in your life that correspond to that love? And do you see a change in the way that you love other people rooted in the teachings of Jesus? And you see a change over time. Right, like, the question isn't, Like, maybe think of it this way. I'll give you one more illustration. Think of it this way, right? Like, how do you evaluate whether or not you're getting healthier? It's not like there's some metric that says, like, well, if you get to this exact weight, or if I do this amount of exercise. No, you just look back and say, am I doing different things than I was doing before? That means I'm moving towards health and away from unhealth. And it's the same way with our faith. It's not like I got to get to this bar, but it's like, but have I actually changed? Am I heading in a different direction? Are the actions of my life aligning more with Jesus or not? Because genuine faith is revealed through action. And so the question that I want to leave us with this morning is simply this. What are your actions revealing? What are they revealing? That's not a question for anyone else to look at you and judge with. That's just a question for you to think about for yourself. Are my actions revealing a genuine faith in Jesus or not? And James's heart is that you would know so you could have assurance that your faith is genuine and you will experience what God has for those who put their faith in Jesus. And I'm not sure how you answer that question. But as we close, I want to remind you of one thing when it comes to the reality that genuine faith is revealed through actions, and it's this that it doesn't start with action. It starts with faith. If you walk away from this passage and you start to go, shoot, what are all the things that I've got to start doing to please God? Like, um, maybe I got to serve my church more. Maybe I got to give more. Maybe I got to help someone in need more. Maybe I got to go serve in a homeless shelter. Like, God, what do you want me to do? If you walk away with this feeling like, "Ah, I I got to do, I got to do, I got to do, you're missing the point. That's not where it starts. It starts with what do you trust? What's rooted at the core of your life? Have you really trusted in Jesus as your Savior? Have you recognized that you cannot earn justification before God? You cannot be declared righteous. But God, in his grace, sent his son to die the death that you deserved for your sins. And what he offers you is his perfect righteousness so that when you trust in him, he takes your sin and offers you forgiveness and righteousness. Have you put your trust there? Have you trusted that Jesus is the true king of the world, that he has risen from the dead, that he has conquered death and is bringing God's kingdom to bear on this earth and he will return one day to establish God's kingdom fully and finally and say, yes, I'm with that guy. I'm going to follow his way of living. I'm going to figure out how to become more like him. Have you started to live that way? Right, that's the question. What do you trust? 
When you evaluate your actions, it shows you what you actually believe. And if you're finding yourself in a place where you're going, I'm not sure if my actions are showing I really believe in Jesus, then the call from James is, then believe in Jesus. And you can't do that through your action. You do that by surrendering to him, by confessing that he is Savior and Lord. And then you let that faith be revealed over time in your life. So no matter where you're at, my call to you today is put your faith in Christ. And then let that be shown through the way you live. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your grace. God, we recognize this is a hard passage. I feel it. I feel it. It causes us such turmoil in our hearts, but I think it's meant to. I think it's meant to bring us back to that place where we recognize that the starting point of salvation is a genuine faith in you. That it is not ultimately what we do that earns that. What we do only reveals what we truly believe. And so, God, I just want to pray over this room right now, right now, because I know the enemy wants to come in and he wants to draw our thing and distract us and say, you're not living good enough. You need to do more. I pray you'd silence that voice and instead you would elevate the voice of your spirit that would draw our attention to Jesus Christ and remind us ultimately that our hope, our salvation is our trust in him. And that even when we fail, you offer grace and mercy for us to stand up straight and to continue to follow after him. God, if if our actions are revealing that we don't actually believe, and then would you work salvation right now? Would you come and draw our attention to the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus? Would you help us to put our faith more deeply in him? We just give you this time and ask that you would even move in response. Help us to have genuine faith that results in real life change, we pray. In your name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.